Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Bill Campbell was put on the earth to coach other people. For 15 years, he coached athletes, football players to be exact, as an assistant coach at Boston College and later as head coach at Columbia University. And at age 39, he left football for the business world. And he quickly moved up the ranks at Kodak before becoming the VP of sales and marketing at Apple and later the CEO at Intuit. But it was in his final 16 years of his career for which he'll be most remembered. He was the executive coach to a who's who of Silicon Valley leaders during the years their companies were changing the world as we knew it. The list of people whom Bill Campbell coached during that period included Apple founder Steve Jobs, Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, Google's first chairman Eric Schmidt, and current CEO Sundar Pichai. He coached Facebook Sheryl Sandberg, former Twitter CEO Dick Costello, and even former United States Vice President Al Gore, and so many others. So today, we're going to dig into what it was about Bill Campbell that made him so effective as a coach, and why so many technology leadership stars relied upon his counsel and direction. And we're going to learn about Bill from one of his disciples, longtime Alphabet Senior Vice President Jonathan Rosenberg. Along with former Google Chairman Eric Schmidt and Google Director Alan Eagle, Jonathan has written an homage to his mentor. It's called Trillion Dollar Coach, the Leadership Playbook of Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell, which, after it was published just this April, immediately became a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. As we're about to discuss with Jonathan, Bill Campbell excelled as a coach because he intentionally, knowingly, and powerfully affected the hearts of people. He went out of his way to develop an unusually deep personal connection with everyone he worked with, and he made them feel highly valued. In the words of the authors, he embraced the whole person and made them feel loved. When you consider how much Silicon Valley prides itself on having the brainiest leaders, it's more remarkable, at least to me, that Campbell's approach to coaching was so impactful to so many. Bill's superpower was his ability to build trust. He demonstrated loyalty and discretion while giving people candid performance feedback in order to help them grow. And importantly, he expressed belief and trust in their ability to succeed. And Bill emphasized collaboration, cooperation, and a team-first mindset, three cornerstones of his collegiate football coaching success. Bill Campbell is arguably the greatest executive coach of all time, and we're about to explore all the behaviors that set him apart, practices we might all be wise to emulate given their magnificent impact. With that as a background, I am thrilled to welcome you, Jonathan Rosenberg, to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, let's talk about your book and let's talk about the subject of your book, Bill Campbell. Here's a guy who was the head football coach at Columbia University, who then decided to quit that job at 39 years old and moved to Silicon Valley, and within just five years was running sales and marketing at Apple under Steve Jobs. And from there, he became the CEO at Intuit and later a coach to many of the top Silicon Valley execs. So this is a wild career path, and I'm hoping you can start us off by telling us about how anybody could you know, maneuver that way in their career. And then ultimately, as we start this, what was it about him that influenced you to immortalize him in your book? Sure, Mark. Well, it is a pretty wild career path, and Bill actually played football at Columbia 
which is how he initially got started as a football coach. He was an undersized lineman, 165 pounds back in the day when uh, people were not quite as large as they are today in that sport. And when he graduated, after winning the only championship which Columbia earned in Ivy League history, he went and was a football coach at Boston College. He almost went on to Penn State working for Joe Paterno, but his alma mater, Columbia, called and wanted him to coach football there. He did for several years. He lost far more football games than he won. Wasn't a very successful coach, but was beloved by his team and developed all sorts of skills in working with people and team management as a coach. So at age 39, he ended up going to J. Walter Thompson, which was an ad agency, which he was introduced to through someone who he had played football with. And working there, he was exposed to a client in Kodak and later to John Scully, who brought him out to Apple. For those who are familiar with the 1984 famous Apple Super Bowl ad, that was actually Bill. And the Apple board initially rejected the ad and wanted uh, Bill and the team to sell the ad space, which they ultimately decided not to do. He then went on to Claris Go, which was a startup in Penn Computing, which he famously said didn't go, <laughs> went on as, as the CEO to Intuit, and then a, a role coaching companies in the Valley. And I think that kind of gets to your last question is, you know, what really caused us to want to immortalize him? You know, I think it was both the fact that, as we titled the book, Trillion Dollar Coach, the market cap of both Apple and Google far exceeds a trillion dollars. But more importantly, we were motivated to write the book when we were sitting at his funeral service at Sacred Heart. And I looked around and realized that here was a man who I felt like was the most influential man and coach in my life. And there were 2,000 people under this tent who all felt similarly. And that was kind of the moment when we realized, okay, we need to codify this man's wisdom and share it more broadly. So we're going to dig into the wisdom in a second here, but I'm curious as to, there's some connectors that are missing here in the story. What was his competency, separate from being a coach? What made him so successful in terms of this 39 years old is quite a odd age to be making a move out of athletic coaching into business. And then the guy just explodes yeah. and does some pretty remarkable stuff. So pin down who he was from a competency standpoint. Well, from a competency standpoint, he would often say, I'm just a dumb football coach. And he was absolutely not that. He understood people. He understood team dynamics. He understood that when you're running a company, your, your primary asset is your people. They walk out the door at the end of every day. And you've got to value people and you've got to make them feel valued. And he understood how to do that. He also understood how to make decisions, how to you know, give people the room to debate, how to build and establish trust with them, and how to really kind of foster and champion camaraderie, esprit de corps, and a team-first mindset. Interestingly, he really didn't know a great deal about tech or technology. He didn't weigh in on strategic decisions. He rarely even weighed in on tactical decisions. He was much more focused on establishing a team-first mindset within the organization and helping us operate better as a community and as a team. And I think that was really his superpower. So I'm assuming you can confirm this, 
that it was not only a superpower, but it was a rare power. Yeah, I think it is. And I think we don't see many companies. And in fact, as you'll note in the book, we did a lot of research on the literature around team building and coaching. And although we found that a lot of the principles that Bill espoused and followed were in the literature, there really isn't anything in the literature about coaches of management teams in business environments. There's lots about coaches in sports. There's lots about people who are super successful in sports still having coaches. But in management, coaching tended to be something that we chose to do for people who, for one reason or another, weren't doing well, executives mm-hmm. who needed help. Underperforming. Bill was about coaching top performing executives, but more importantly, coaching top performing executives within the context of their relationship with each other as part of a management team. So you're anticipating my next question brilliantly. So well done. When Google was just getting started, so this is from your book, the company's investors thought it would be beneficial for its young founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, and even for CEO Eric Schmidt to have this mentor, someone more senior experienced, I'm assuming, and accomplished that they could use as a sounding board and a guide. So the premise Mm -hmm. here is, These guys are young. This is a new company. Having somebody who can be seasoned coaching, somebody obviously who's coming off of being the CEO of a major company would be that guy. So Bill became the coach. But it wasn't long before he became a coach to the entire team, which I really want to dig into you because that is obviously very rare. So having an executive management coach for the whole team, working with people individually, but also within the context of the team is a pretty innovative idea here. And I want to read something that you guys wrote in your book about the role that Bill played at Google. And I wonder whether you believe all companies need someone like Bill to keep the executive team on track. Okay. So here's what you wrote. You said, to balance the tension and mold the team into a community, you need a coach, someone who works not only with individuals, but with the team as a whole to smooth out the constant tension, continuously nurture community, and make sure it's aligned around a common vision and set of goals. Coaching is the best way to mold effective people into powerful teams. That's a stunning paragraph. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and then tell us where you guys have landed. He's deceased now. He just, he died about a year ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. A year ago in April. So just correcting one of the statements that you made, it really wasn't the board and the investors that brought Bill in to coach Eric and Larry and Sergey. It was more John Doerr, who was a board member and an investor, but it was really his relationship with Bill that was sort of the catalyst and genesis of Bill coming in with Larry and Sergey and and with Eric. Mm -hmm. I think that it's interesting that you picked up on that, that paragraph about teams and the degree to which other organizations need coaches of teams. When we first started writing the book, to be perfectly honest, we didn't realize the extent to which Bill was a coach of us as a team. I didn't realize it until I talked to other people on the executive team about things that Bill had said to them about me or things that Bill had asked me to do to help them. So the initial thesis of the book was that Even executives that were doing well needed coaches, not just executives who weren't doing well, the same as pro athletes. But it really wasn't until we did the interviews in the book that we realized that companies needed coaches of teams. I think one of the things that was different at Google is we kind of 
ask ourselves to what degree this applies to other companies is that both Bill and Eric Schmidt were very focused on retaining a functional structure as the company grew from hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. Most companies and most external management consultants told us that we really needed to move to a structure that was more a general manager structure, which Eric and Bill really didn't want to do. When you have a general manager who's managing a team and maybe playing a role as coach, a external coach who coaches the entire team isn't nearly as important as when you're running things functionally. And what Bill really did, and what I think any company that's run functionally needs, a company that has someone running marketing, someone running HR, someone running engineering, someone running product management, you need a coach that gets those people into the management room and has them take their functional hat off and put their you know company team hat on. I think when you're structured around general managers, you achieve that but only within the context of each general manager's own organization. And the general managers then tend to fight with each other for resources, you know, at the CEO's meeting. So I think the missing ingredient in functional organizations is absolutely a coach who can see across each of those functional senior vice presidents and get them to work together as more of a team. So not that you could replace him, obviously, but in theory, are you moving in that direction? Are you looking to continue that not only at the executive level, but even at more junior levels? I think we are. I think that many of the principles that we espouse in the book and that we've codified from Bill are the kind of things that any manager can learn to do. And that, you know, even just practicing elevator chat and asking someone how they're doing, but more than just how are you doing, you know, how was your weekend? Acknowledging that you know what their project is, acknowledging that you know a little bit about their personal lives and their family and developing that connection. I think that managers at Google and at some of the Alphabet companies are much better at doing that today because of the legacy that Bill left. I'm not sure that we have anyone of the same gravitas and stature that Bill had in the senior management meetings, but we are trying to continue to kind of codify his wisdom, share it in our management training classes, and get more people to practice the kind of coaching and management that Bill taught us. Did he ever get into trouble in terms of, you know, I mean, obviously this language of smoothing out the constant tension caught my eye because that's what happens. And, you know, the more senior you get in an organization, it seems, I don't know, if egos jump in or people become more territorial or they're certain in their own view of things, but having somebody to sort of say, whoa, 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 let's kind of, you know, cool our jets here and see if we can work our way through this seemed like a brilliant move to me. I'm just wondering if in that process, did he ever ruffle feathers or did people just have a deep respect for him where they thought, this is the coach, I'm going to respect his viewpoint? Well, he absolutely ruffled feathers. He was very focused on managers understanding that it's your job to drive to the best decision and manage the decision-making process and kind of reinforce the first principles that you hold to be self-evident about what you're trying to accomplish. But in the end, somebody needs to break the tie. And Bill was terrific at kind of calling us out when as managers, we were failing to break the tie. Hmm. He didn't tend to weigh in on how to break the tie in terms of, you know, we're at a fork in the road. Are we going to go north? Are we going to go east? Or, you know, are we going to 
choose some other alternative. He would weigh in and say, the team has stalled. This has turned into a session where everyone's just complaining and whining and moaning. You need to make a decision. And sure, that decision would often alienate people. And Bill had kind of the gravitas and respect to help us figure out when we needed to make those decisions. And that did often upset people. But I think they always knew that Bill was focused on what was best for Google and what was best for the company. And they respected his impartiality. They respected his integrity. And they deferred to him in letting us know when a decision needed to be made as opposed to what the decision should be. I love that. To the extent that you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about what being coached by him was like for you? Yeah, sure. What was he pushing you on? What was he challenging you on? Where did you grow? What do you appreciate most from those sessions? Yeah, he had a real formula for running one-on-ones. And, you know, it's interesting. We told the story in the book of how we discovered that the way he did them with me was different than the way he did them from Eric. And I described them for our co-author, Alan. He would have you come in and he would ask you what you wanted to focus on, you know, three, four, five things. Generally, he had a kind of a rubric, which was these things should be in categories, performance against your specific objectives, your relationship with peers, your ability to drive innovation and your management practices. And he would want to talk about things that fit into those buckets. And so you would share your list with him. And then he usually had a list of his own in his pocket. And he would look at the list in his pocket. And if your list was the same, then for that day, Jonathan had his priorities right. And if the lists were different, then he would correct you and tell you what he wanted to talk about. Turned out that when I shared this description with Eric, Eric said, well, that's not what Bill would do. You're mistaken. You would walk in and there would be five words on the whiteboard behind him. And those were the things that he wanted to talk about. And you would then focus on them. And so Eric and I I then argued about this for a little while. And Alan nicely pointed out that maybe the difference between Eric and me was that Eric, Bill didn't need to check Eric's priorities. So he would reveal them at the same time. Whereas with me, he was actually testing me Mm -hmm. when I came into the room to see what my priorities were. But He would go through these things in this order, and he would often have issues that he needed to resolve that he'd learned from other people where he wanted to get you to be more open to their idea, or he'd want to get you to build your relationship with them so that the synapses would fire better across the functions. And he'd spend an hour, and the hour would always begin with questions about what you'd been doing personally, about your family. And they wouldn't just kind of be trite questions. You know, he knew, you know, my daughter was a big soccer player and he was very interested in our kids' athletic achievements. So he would ask who they'd played and how they'd done, or he might have even looked up the score of a game before I got there. He would do things that showed that he wasn't just asking these questions, but that he actually, you know, that he really cared. How many people in your career have you met that when they ask you, how are you, how was your weekend, do you think had that kind of backup where they'd already done the work and they know the team, they know the level, they know what her aspirations are? I mean, did that affect you on a different level when he asked you that kind of a question, that authenticity? Yeah, Mark, because the answer is there are people like Bill that do that with me. They're called my friends. And I historically hadn't had a lot of people with whom I had that kind of a relationship at work. Or if I did, it felt contrived. 
with Bill, it was never contrived either as an individual, but more importantly, even as a community. And we talk about that when we go through how he encouraged Eric to start his staff meetings with trip reports, which seemed like an odd way to begin a meeting. You know, you've got all of these executives and we're showing up in in a company that's growing and super successful. And the first thing that Bill and Eric want to talk about is, well, where did you go this weekend and what did you do? But what I learned from that, because I'd never seen that done anywhere else, is that people would show up to Eric's meeting kind of girding for battle and getting Eric to make a decision about the things that we disagreed about. And by starting with trip reports and kind of humanizing what we'd been doing, you break down the walls between people and you get them in the room to let their guard down before they start talking about the issues that they're really emotional about. And trip reports allowed us to develop relationships within Eric's staff meeting and across the executives in the staff meeting that we would not have developed that then allowed us to run a much less adversarial meeting. Sounds like he just had this deep intuitive understanding of how to change the energy in people. And the moment, you know, and the the moment. moment. Exactly right. I mean, another thing that he would do, you know, it's a podcast, so you can't see me, but Mark, you're doing a terrific job of interviewing me. And then he would go like this. (laughs) You just start clapping, okay? In the middle of a board meeting, you'd be sitting there, somebody would be giving a demo. (laughs) And from the back of the room, Bill would be clapping. Well, how, you know, we interviewed various Apple board members about this and they said things like, you can't really argue with a man clapping, right? It's just this visceral reinforcement of you're doing a good job and it makes people feel good and it wakes everyone up in the meeting and it moves the meeting along on a trajectory, you know, that keeps everyone together. Who does that? Nobody, exactly. But this is the whole purpose of this discussion. So you're giving a magnificent, you're fleshing him out in all the ways that I hoped you would. And we were only 20 minutes into this. Then you need to clap for me as well, Mark. I am. (laughs) Here we go. I'm doing it without it. But I I was literally sitting on my hands. So I apologize. But that's really what I intended to do is like, you're really doing a great job of fleshing him out. And also sort of giving, not sort of, but intentionally giving us an example of these are the behaviors to emulate if you're a manager because they're disarming and they're heartening. They're powerful. Yeah. I want to talk to you because you just mentioned this whole idea that weak managers can all be good coaches. And I absolutely believe in that. I absolutely believe that in many cases we should actually eliminate the word manager and change it into coach because I think that it fundamentally changes the motivation if you see yourself as a coach, particularly if you align yourself up to anybody who's a really great sports coach, as he was. And this is not only tapping into what you've learned from him, but also what you've learned in your organization, which you know I continue to think Google is one of the most actualized organizations on the planet when it comes to managing people. So how do you teach managers to become good coaches? What can we learn? Well, as you mentioned, we've done a lot of research in this internally. You know, we had a project, Project Oxygen, that we published. There are a bunch of details in Laszlo book, Laszlo Box book, Work Rules, but that basically revealed that our most successful teams focus on safety, psychological safety, you know, respect, clarity of goals, a mission that matters, roles that matter. 
And I think we've taken those things, but we've also been modifying the internal training classes, which Alan, our co-author and I have been helping on. Bill did a final version of his class for managers at Google the year before he passed away. And we still have a video and recording of that event, which we used to dig up some of the principles that we have in the book. But we're continuing to teach that class. We're continuing to emphasize to our managers how much this role of coaching matters. And I think that first step, you know, we mentioned in the book that Bill would teach us that your title makes you a manager, but it's your people that make you a leader. And you need your people to elect you captain of the team by showing them that you know how to manage well and that you practice the management principles that you preach. So we've tried very hard to kind of articulate those to our managers, you know, make sure that they're following the formula, but that they're also then getting feedback from their people, seeing that, confirming that their people feel valued, establishing the kind of trust and team first mindset and camaraderie and community and love that Bill taught us both inside and outside the workplace. And that's now a big component of our management training practices. Well, one of the things that crossed my mind was that we talked early on about his competency. And so he had the credibility of being a former executive with great success, particularly being a CEO of a couple of organizations. So I'm going to listen to somebody like that because I think he's been around the world and twice to Texas. Sure. How do you make a young manager? And by young, I'm even talking about somebody in their, you know, their 30s, maybe even 40s who aren't all that worldly yet and yet have teams of, you know, dozens of people working for them. How do they become better coaches? How do we become better coaches? Well, I think the first thing is you need somebody like Bill who can kind of break you down and show you what you're missing. And Bill would start by determining whether or not people are coachable. And first thing he asked me when he interviewed me was, are you coachable? <laughs> right. You know, and I said, it depends on the quality of yeah, the coach. He blew the answer, if I remember correctly. And, you know, he said, well, smart Alex are not coachable. <laughs> right? And so, you know, step one is you have to be coachable and you have to be a lifelong learner and willing to learn and not the kind of person who has the arrogance, you know, that you know it all. One of Bill's favorite quotes was John Wooden, you know, who said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And for me, you know, I wasn't in my early 30s when I met Bill. I was in my early 40s. But with everything that I did, hiring, organizational planning, running my staff meeting, Bill would come in and point out mistakes that I'd made, things that I could do better. And I think, you know, similarly to the way I think he coached a football player, right? And he'd coach you right then and there. He'd tell you, unlike a mentor who you might go visit off-site somewhere else, Bill would observe you on the playing field like he would his players. And then afterwards, he'd say, this is what you could have done better. And when you'd reflect on that in the moment, you'd realize that he was right. So it was important that he had the experience and that you were open to listening to him but it was also just so obvious that the observations that he was making were valid. And he would often, even when he would sit in staff meetings, he would be looking around the room. He'd be looking at people when I was speaking and I'd be thinking about what I was saying and he'd be looking for their reactions to the things that I said and then sharing with me and saying, you know, 
this person wasn't bought into what you said, and this person was. And very quickly, you'd realize that he was right. I love the attention to detail that you just described comes through in the book. It reminded me, and you mentioned John Wooden, you know, he, he used to teach his players how to put their socks on, which sounds ridiculous, right? How to tie your shoes, right? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar learned from John Wooden how to tie his shoes and pull up his socks because everything you do before the moment in a game is preparation. And preparation, John Wooden taught matters, and all of those details matter. And those are things that you can do in advance and it matters. And Bill understood that and Bill taught us that. Do you at Google specifically, have you tapped your senior managers, people at your level and maybe a couple levels down to say that you have a responsibility to elevate the people coming up from below? Are you assigning more coaching, more relationship building, just this idea of bringing people up and giving them that kind of guidance and direction. Yeah, I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly informal mentoring systems and formal mentoring systems. And in product management, we always, we assign coaches, particularly coaches to some of the strongest up and coming younger product managers. So we definitely have systems in place for this. We bought lots of people copies of the Bill Campbell book and some of the courses that he taught are available you know, in video internally. So absolutely, I think, you know, we're very focused on codifying the principles of the management team, which I think we tried to do in our first book, How Google Works, particularly in terms of hiring, decision-making, communication, innovation. But then when Bill passed away, I think in some ways, Trillion Dollar Coaches is a bit of a sequel to How Google Works because in How Google Works, we didn't talk as much about teamwork and coaching, you know, we talked more about management, but absolutely, these are all principles that we have young Google managers focus on. One of the things that Bill believed was that relationships with peers are more important than relationships with one's manager or higher ups. And that struck me because I had to learn that painfully, to be honest with you. And he even developed this peer feedback survey that I think you guys used for a long time. So, Tell us about this. As a setup, I'll tell you that I was in financial services and I just always believed that my success was going to be judged by people above me based on the success of my team. Mm -hmm. And I always had really, truly remarkable teams, whatever business I was running. And there was a very big promotion that came up and everybody said, well, we already know you're going to get it. And I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking to me. And so I went to my boss and they said, okay, I, you know, obviously you're, you're making a statement here. I don't know what the statement is. And he said, you have so much to share and you don't share it. You're not helping other people around you be as good as you are. And I thought, well, I never realized that was my responsibility. I'm certainly not unwilling or resistant to sharing insight with other people. I just didn't think it was my role. And he said, well, if you want that job, that's the role. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, okay. That was an easy pivot, but I was blind to it. One of the things that Bill really understood was his own difference in how he would evaluate people at different levels. So if you were a product manager, and you wrote good product plans, and you had just started out of school, you know, that was pretty good. If you were a group product manager, then your products needed to work with other products, and they needed to perform in the marketplace. 
You know, if you were a director, then, you know, you needed to do a better job of making sure that all the products work together and that all of the other functions were successful in implementing them. You know, if you were a vice president, you really needed to make relationships between people at the top levels in the company with your peers and with your colleagues better. And Bill really deeply understood this. And, you know, interestingly, my own kind of voyage of discovery on this issue with him, you know, similar to yours, you know, our founders, Larry and Sergey, you know, were terrific visionaries, but they didn't provide a lot of feedback to the people on their management team. And at one point I was whining in Bill's office that Larry and Sergey hadn't said anything nice about the department that I was building and the team that I was building. And I'd inherited some very senior people, Marissa Meyer, who later mm-hmm. was the CEO at Yahoo, Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube today. And I'd been furiously hiring terrific people like Sundar, who now run now the CEO. But Larry and Sergey weren't super positive about my performance. And, or at least they weren't super positive at elucidating and articulating what a great job I was doing. And Bill said to me, well, what does David Drummond think about how you're doing? David's our corporate counsel. And what does Shona Brown, who runs HR, think? And what does Alan Eustace, who runs engineering, think? And I said, well, I get along well with them. I think they think I'm doing a good job. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think I'm doing a great job too. And he said, well, then why are you worried about what they think? Or why are you worried that you're not hearing what they think? And that was very interesting. And when we did our first review, saw Bill's rubric for how he looks at senior managers. And it was all about their relationships with their peers, in addition to their performance against the objectives that the company had set for them, and what they were doing to break down the barriers between departments, and how they were establishing themselves as world class leaders, and what they were doing not because it was in the interest of their department, but because it was in the interests of Google. And he then even helped me develop for product managers, since I was running product management, what do we evaluate them on? Product leader has to have vision. A product leader's products you know, need to be of high quality. A product leader needs to deliver and execute. And to do that, you need great relationships with the other people in the company. So I think I knew that as a manager, you're the sum of what the people who are under you produce, but it's not just the people that are under you, it's the people that are under the peers who you work with that matter as well. Very well well said. I've taken my hands from under my legs to applaud you. That's what I mean, that's just really wonderful insight and better that people learn it. Unlike in the way that I did, you know, where it cost you something. So thank you. I want to tap into something else that he did that I thought was pretty clever. And it's a story that you tell in the book where Bill would take two executives or managers, people who weren't working well together. And he would, I'm also cleverly again, assign them to work together on a presentation or a project as a means of sorting out their issues, right? So tell us about this. So he would do this. Interestingly, he did this both with people who needed to work together, but he also would make those synapses fire across the management team, you know, with people who might otherwise successfully build a relationship. So let me give you a couple of examples. He sat in on my staff meeting once and he said, you know, Jonathan, you did a lousy job. You're like a dictator. First, you demonstrate to everybody that you know what's in the staff packet that they're supposed to read beforehand better than they do. 
which really isn't that big a deal because you wrote it. So, you know, congratulations. <laughs> you know what's in the staff packet that you sent out. But second, you basically go around quickly coming up with action items and assigning them to individuals. And every task in a staff meeting that comes up is an opportunity to build the combinatorial sets of permutations and combinations of relationships that you need in your staff. So in one staff meeting, I'd assigned figuring out where our next offsite was going to be and how we were going to run it to one individual. I think it was Marissa. And Bill said, you should assign the task to both Marissa and Susan because the offsite is something that isn't controversial that they can do together. And I can anticipate in a month, we've got a product decision that they're going to be at odds with and we need with each other on, and we need to build their relationship better so that they've got a stronger foundation to work together where they've worked together on something that's more of a softball and a layup. And that was pretty fascinating to me because that's not the most efficient way to get things done, mm -hmm. right? But even more important, another thing that he did when Patrick Pichette, who was our CFO for many years, came in, I'd interviewed him and Bill said to him, you know, at Google, it's really hard to be a new senior manager that comes in. We kind of haze the new people and it takes time to build relationships with the other managers on the team. But Jonathan knows a lot about finance and has been doing the earnings calls. He would be the best person for you to really build a relationship with. He's super busy, but you know, Fridays aren't quite as busy. You should try to have lunch with him on Fridays and see if you can get on his schedule at least, you know, a few times a quarter. Meanwhile, he comes to me and he says, Jonathan, you should have lunch with Patrick every Friday for the first <laughs> quarter that he's here. And I'd like you to let me know how those meetings are going. Well, I go have the meetings every Friday and Patrick takes it as this signal that somebody on the management team really cares about his well-being and his success because the guy Bill told him it was going to be hard to get on his calendar. Jonathan is offering to meet with him every week. Mm. Right. I mean, you know, and I, I only discovered that while interviewing for the book. Really? Yeah. It never became apparent that he was playing against both sides, huh? Well, but again, there, it's interesting the way you interpreted that, which I would differ with. He wasn't playing us against each other. I, I didn't mean it in that way. So thanks for the correction. I meant that he's playing you in a way that he's making right. both people feel like, wow, I'm doing something for him. Look how grateful he is. And the right. other guy is saying, I'm so grateful because he's making time for me. Right. So I would say I accept your I accept your analysis. We got played, but we didn't get played in a manipulative way right. or in a way that wasn't good for both of us. Wow. I've read a book about this guy. He's pretty smart. <laughs> Something else that just struck me that I really, really loved reading. He said that he believed in being very generous with compensation. And I'm I'm a big you reap what you sow philosopher, if you will. So yeah. that really resonated with me. But what he went on to say, and this again is in your book, in your packet, if you will, so you're already familiar with this, but money isn't about money. It's about the emotional value. Yeah. It's a signaling device for recognition, respect, and status. It's not for the money that people want to be paid well. It's for the love. So yeah. tell us how you've learned to approach compensation based on this and even more, you know, clarity into his insight. Yeah. Well, look, there's certainly a competitive dynamic in terms of compensation and a marketplace driven dynamic in terms of what you need to do and, and what you need to pay. 
I think Bill was terrific at maintaining an ongoing relationship with people so that they constantly knew where they stood in terms of performance relative to the job. More importantly, he would evangelize to give you the courage to get you to do better. So he was constantly trying to get you to do better. And then the compensation at the end was really just a way of stating and reinforcing that he valued you. But what was important was he'd already made you feel valued. He'd already made you feel heard. The money wasn't a signal to make up for having mistreated you or having forced you to put up with him over the course of the year. The money was a signal at the end that stood on its own, that basically just said, we recognize you, we respect you, we appreciate you, but you already know that by my actions. And that's why when he then delivered or helped the founders or Eric deliver the compensation at the end, it had so much of a stronger message associated with it. Yeah, because you're only talking about compensation a few times a year, but you're having that interaction with your boss and your management team very often. And so if you're feeling that valued, then you open up the box and you see what you're being paid and you see it's being generous. It's like cherry on the top, right? Yeah. And, and it comes with his congratulations and his handshake and his pat on the back. And then the next week, his suggestions on how you can be even better. And I think that's sort of an element of coaching that we haven't touched on yet, which is most managers focus on evaluating people, reviewing people, getting them to perform against their objectives, helping them get promoted. Bill was all about helping you get better, helping you get better as a person, helping you get better as a leader, helping you get better as a coach, helping you get better as a manager, and helping you remain open to being willing to get better. Did that feel threatening sometimes? How did he make you trust him to give you that direct feedback? So he was all about loyalty. He was all about integrity. He was all about discretion. And I think, to be honest, his principles tend to work better for people who are reasonably self-aware and really want to learn and are really coachable. So he would really restrict himself to working with the people who he felt were super coachable. And if you weren't coachable, he would kind of jettison you from under his purview and he wouldn't spend more, you know, he wouldn't waste his time with you. Well, I mean, isn't that true of all managers, though, at some point? You know, you you have to evaluate whether or not if I'm going to invest time and energy in you and heart, if you will, you know, then there has to be some reciprocity. I have to see that you're not just responding to it and grateful for it, but that you're you're capable of growing from it, right? Yeah, I I think that's true. But I think with Bill, you understood that the scale and scope of the opportunity for you to learn from him and to get better was absolutely critical, in particular at Google, because of the scale and rate of growth and challenges that we had. And Bill was just able to help you see the opportunity, but also able to help you understand viscerally where it was that you were making mistakes and what it is that you needed to do in terms of setting objectives for the next year to do even better. 
Did you see many of your peers or, you know, people might be at, at a different level than you squander that? Or did most people, you know, like all people value having the opportunity to be coached by him that that just never was an issue? I guess I did see some people squander it. Absolutely. And some of them ended up leaving the company and some of them really only understood what they had squandered after they had squandered it. Mm -hmm. And Bill was not particularly forgiving with those people. He was forgiving of people who made mistakes. He was forgiving of people who tried to do something and failed. He was not forgiving of people who lacked integrity or didn't see the value in at least listening to him and trying to get better based on his input. Were there defense mechanisms in play there or was it just like... I I guess I would characterize those people as generally defensive Mm -hmm. and people who thought they knew it all Mm -hmm. or people who thought because they understood tech or they understood the direction that we needed to go better than Bill did, you know, that his advice wasn't of the level of value that some of the rest of us understood it was. I want to go back to something that you hinted at earlier and... You tell us in your book that what ultimately made Bill so successful in a coach and mentor was that all of his behavior was rooted in love. And you said that everything he brought to the boardroom came from a place in his heart. And that even when he yelled at people, coaches do that, it was because he loved them, cared about them and wanted to see them succeed. So this is a safe zone for discussing love and leadership, but it's still very rare that you see it. And so when you said that so many people you spoke to for the book got emotional speaking about that, I wondered as I was reading that, do you think it was because in maybe during or certainly upon reflection that what they felt from that guy was love? Oh, I don't think it was upon reflection. I think they felt it in the moment. Did they know what it was in the moment? That's, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And when we say love, we mean love, as you sort of mentioned, in the appropriate avuncular, you know, chaste sense of the word. Bill was someone who merged, you know, he didn't believe in work-life balance in the sense that there was work and there was the rest of your life and you needed to sort of separate and balance them. He merged all of these things together. And everything he did was about showing that he cared. And it was genuine, right? I mean, even going back to kind of my daughter's soccer exploits, right? I remember sending Bill, you know, quick little videos of Hannah scores, you know, when she's 10 years old. And he doesn't reply, great, tell her congratulations. He replies, that's awesome. But who's the lunatic in the background yelling, goal, 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 (laughs) right? Which, of course, is always coaching. And, but what was important there was he didn't just say, that's great. He showed you that that was great in a way that reflected that he watched the video, right? And so you felt that he cared, it was palpable. His cheering was palpable. We have lots of examples in the book of ways that he would go out of his way to help people. You know, one of the things that I did at some point at Google was I bought all the employees bike helmets. They said Google on them. And I only learned later that Bill told one of the people who got in an accident with his bike helmet how wonderful it was that I had done that and how proud of me he was that my gift to all of the employees at some point was bike helmets right? So he was all about kind of building both relationships one-on-one in terms of love, but also communities, right? When he would even take his 
local Sacred Heart football team kids to a Giants game, he wouldn't just buy everyone tickets. He would buy everyone tickets and arrange for a bus so that everyone did everything together. So he was someone who just deeply understood how to foster camaraderie and community with employees. But even more importantly, as we talk about in the book, Bill had a special love for founders. And he would say to people, I remember he said to Dick Costello at Twitter, you're the CEO, but one day there'll be another CEO and these guys will still be the founders, right? And Bill went out of his way and really believed that all managers needed to go out of their way to maintain strong relationships with founders. So before I let this go, I want to dig a little bit more into it. You use this language, companionate love, which I think inherently means affection, compassion, kindness, caring, those kinds of things. Yeah. Which Google has this history of hiring, you know, super brilliant cerebral people. And yet this book comes out and is celebrating a guy who is bringing what you call companionate love to how he's coaching and supporting management. So pin down what love is and how, and not in the broadest sense, in the sense you, I, I know you, you know exactly what I'm talking about in terms of what leaders need to learn from this. What's your advice on Bill's example? Well, look, I think to simplify it, I think love is caring about your people, you know, fiercely and genuinely and fighting for them. And, you know, embracing them as a person and understanding them as a whole person and then building community out of that, you know, both in the workplace and out of the workplace. And, you know, I think companies try to do this. They, you know, host social get togethers. But Bill did those in unique ways. And Bill was always invested in creating this, you know, this real and emotional bond with you but also between all of the people who needed to be connected in the company. You know, one of the quick stories I'll tell you that I told in the book, my admin, Sade, had been outside my office one day when Bill came to meet with me. And I was in my office interviewing a candidate who had been late. So my interview was running late. And I can see my admin and Bill outside my office. And of course, I was worried because I didn't want to be late for Bill. And Bill kind of waved, oh, no, it's okay. I'm just out here talking. Take your time. Finish the interview. And he comes in and he says, so when are you going to write Sade's recommendation to law school? And I looked at him like, why would I write a recommendation to law school? She's my admin and I need her to be my admin. I didn't know she's applying to law school. And Bill looked at me and he was like, I met your admin and after five minutes. <laughs> I could see this going. Like, what kind of a job are you doing as a manager? How do you not know that? Well, you know, I didn't make that mistake again. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I had an opportunity a few years ago to come to Google and actually wrote an article for Fast Company magazine. I interviewed Karen May and Meg Tung and Prasad Seti and got a real deep sense of, you know, how you were approaching leadership at the time. It's probably five years ago or so. By the way, Karen is in charge of producing the management training class, which I spoke at a month ago, in which we're building out Bill's principles and teaching them to managers today. Well, she's brilliant. And she, at the time, gave me a secret that's no longer a secret. She told me that there was a lot of, and something that obviously I didn't publish or share at the time, but that there was a concern about how much work you guys had to do to submit to be considered 
you know, one of the best places to work. In fact, you routinely named the best place to work in America, best global workplace. And so I think at some point recently, you guys have made the decision that we know we're the best place to work. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in the absence of having that confirmation, i.e. by not participating in this anymore, are you less committed to being a great workplace or how are you going to be internally validating that going forward? You know, I mean, I don't think the focus is on being on the list. I think the focus is hiring the best people in the world. I think it absolutely starts with hiring. It starts with hiring people that are brilliant. It starts with hiring people that work hard. You know, it's hiring people that are humble. It's hiring people that are coachable. And, you know, then I think it's also providing a mission that matters, giving people a safe place to say the things that they want to say, to contribute in the way that they want you know, making sure that their role is significant, making sure that they know their role matters, making sure that they're able to achieve their career goals and get the education that they need, and continuing to expand the domain of problems and areas that we're trying to add value in, right? You know, so expanding, you know, our, our mission to organize the world's information and provide more help in education, provide more help in healthcare. So, you know, continue to focus on our, our mission and to make sure that people are happy in what they're doing and have the tools to be successful in their jobs. Well, lately, coincidentally, I mean, speaking about giving your employees voice, which is language Karen May gave me years ago, your employees are pretty vocal these days. Sure. And so what advice would you have to a CEO or uh, executive manager listening to this thinking, man, you know, here's what happens when you give people voice. You know, they they have all sorts of complaints and they want to steer the company in a new direction or a different direction or they don't agree. Is that a nuisance or what's the value for you? Well, look, I think that's a feature, not a bug, right? Googlers are very opinionated and they care passionately about what we're doing and what they're doing and how we're going about doing it. So hearing from them, understanding what they think we could do better, understanding what they think we can do differently is something that you as a management team want to hear. If you're not hearing it, then you're not empowering employees to share. And if you are empowering them to share and they're not sharing anything, then there's some other kind of a problem. You know, I view employees sharing their concerns as a feature and not a bug. I'm very glad I asked that question. Jonathan, if you've heard any of our previous podcasts, you know that we take a break from the discussion and move into what we call the heartbeat round. I have about a dozen questions I'd like to ask you, but with these, your goal is to answer them quickly and instinctively, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Okay, let's do it. Okay, good. All right. A perk that has a surprisingly high value at Google. Laundry machines. A perk that's had surprisingly low value at Google. Soft drinks are poison. One book that profoundly changed your life. My mother might be listening Inside the Black Box by Nathan Rosenberg, but if my mother isn't listening, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. <laughs> the trait you most admire in other people. Intellect. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. Besides Bill Campbell, another coach you highly admire. Don Shula and Clay Christensen, the Harvard professor. <laughs> Skill improvement you're working on right now. Listening to audiobooks at 2.25 times speed. 
Does that work? It's really hard, but the person talks really fast. You have to slow them down sometimes, and it's really difficult. <laughs> I tried that accidentally in her podcast. So I was like, oh, this is ho- I don't even know why they make that feature. No wonder you admire intellect. <laughs> you couldn't digest the book at two and a half times speed. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance. The lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Hard work is really important, and you keep getting better. One subject that you encourage people to bone up on today. Machine learning and artificial intelligence. Your best coaching advice. Be coachable. And one prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Robots will do way more good than harm. Oh, that's wonderful. Fantastic answers. Thank you very much. I just have one more question for you before you go, but uh, these are great. Thank you. My pleasure. And before we wind things down here, Jonathan, I'm wondering if there's just anything that we haven't talked about yet that was part of the book or part of your experience with Bill Campbell's leadership legacy that you want to mention or reemphasize as we close things down? I mean, the big buckets would be, look, it's all about valuing people and making them feel valued. You know, that's true in work. It's true in relationships. It's true in marriage. You know, it's sort of just simple wisdom that not everyone takes the time to do in the workplace. I think have structure around how you get to decisions and give people the room to debate and build envelopes of trust with people, establish that rapport with them, practice being an evangelist for courage and getting them to set even tougher stretch goals, constantly reinforce a team first mindset, which we talked about quite a bit, and know that it's okay to love at work in the way that we've described it. Jonathan Rosenberg, thank you so very much. You've been a wonderful guest, very insightful, very incisive, and uh, uh, give you (laughs) the applause here as we say goodbye. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Mark. We're all familiar with the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And we're gonna test that over the coming weeks. And that's because we're going on a brief summer hiatus, and this is gonna be our last podcast for a while. We're already in the process of lining up more extraordinary guests for the late summer and fall, and we plan to be back with new episodes soon. So while we're away, I hope you'll make time to listen in to some of our podcasts you might have missed. I'm proud to say that in just one year, we've built an audience in 121 different countries. And I think it's because we've consistently brought you remarkable guests and compelling discussions. And as a continued favor, I ask you to please introduce this podcast to your colleagues and friends. And if you're looking for something to read while you're away on vacation, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart. In the meantime, I'd like to thank my team, webmaster Randy Yont and sound engineer and producer Eric Oz. I am incredibly lucky to work with these guys and to be the beneficiary of their amazing work. And as we close, as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm